to you. Good evening, good evening to you. Good evening, good evening. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good evening, good evening to you. You, good evening, good evening, good evening to you. You, good evening, good evening to you. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you've been having a great and wonderful day. Tonight makes season 10, episode 100, and we are excited about it. We have come to our final session for this season. Do want to let you know that we do plan on being back in the fall around August, so you can look for our live broadcast then. We will be continuing to do our Sunday dialogues, um, so you can keep in touch with us for our Sunday dialogues um, through Life Nation, our Facebook channel. And also, if you would like to keep in touch with us, you can visit our Facebook page, Black Table Talk, as well as our Facebook page, During Dialogues, where we will continue to have the necessary conversations. So thank you for the congratulations. I do appreciate them. And also... Thank you to the entire We Dare squad who has been making this possible. Um, without their help, without their support, we would not be able to do the sponsorships that we've been doing. We would not be able to do the... <laughs> we would not be able to do uh, the philanthropic work that we've been doing. So... I do want to say thank you to the We Dare Squad. We're going to also, since you are watching live, if you have PayPal or Cash App, I want you to drop that into the chat. This is only for live viewers. Those of you who are celebrating with us live, drop your PayPal or your Cash App into the chat. And you'll see a little special something from us in celebration of this momentous occasion. So make sure you drop it in there because I am taking note. All right. So tonight, as we end, we're going to talk about two Supreme Court cases. Congratulations to Katanji uh, Jackson, Katanji Brown Jackson. Miami native who has just become our newest Supreme Court justice. They did rule in her favor. I believe the ruling was 5347. So she did have um, the majority vote and she was able to be selected. So we now have a history making moment tonight on the United States scale as long as well as my own history-making moment on the same night. 
Yes, 5347. So she has been officially confirmed to the bench. And uh, earlier this week, we talked about the uh, judiciary power. So you might want to go back and watch that episode. That was episode 98. And we talked about the actual powers that are given through the Constitution, what they can and cannot do. So tonight we are looking at Bush versus Gore, the year 2000 landmark decision on voting rights. And then we are also going to be looking at District of Columbia versus Heller, 2008, right to bear arms, landmark decision. So those are the two cases that we're going to be looking at tonight. Voting rights, Bush versus Gore. In an unprecedented sequence of events, the Supreme Court, in effect, decided the outcome of the 2000 presidential election in favor of George W. Bush by halting the recount ballots in certain Florida counties. Its 5-4 decision ruled that the different standards being used for the recount violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And again, I'm going to say it again, if you are watching us live, make sure you drop your cash app into the chat. This is for live viewers only. Supreme Court prides itself on operating above and apart from the political fray, but in the cascade of events that made the 2000 election unique in American history, avoiding politics proved impossible. As election day drew near, the race between Republican George W. Bush and Democrat Al Gore became extremely close, according to polls. Early on election night, it appeared that Gore would win nationally because he was winning Florida, a key state with 25 electoral college votes. But the tide shifted when networks predicted that Bush would win Florida and Gore was ready to concede the election. At the last minute, Gore decided not to concede, launching a five-week period in which the public was not at all certain who would be the next president. An automatic recount in Florida did not resolve things, at one point showing that only 229 votes separated the candidates among nearly 6 million votes cast. So for those of you all who think my individual vote doesn't necessarily count, think again. Inevitably, the battle moved to the courts and lawyers for both sides descended on Florida, including John Roberts Jr., who would later become Chief Justice of the United States, and R. Ted Cruz, who became a presidential candidate in 2016. The litigation was fueled by reports of ballot irregularities that confused voters and may have skewed the results. Democrats pushed for a manual recount in several counties, while Republicans wanted nothing of the kind, asserting that Bush had already won. Hmm, interesting how that works. Republicans went to federal court to stop the recount. Yet, in the case of Biden, as we see, they demanded recounts all over the country. <laughs> but the judge said the dispute belonged in Florida courts. On November 20th, the Florida Supreme Court ruled that the recounts could continue through Thanksgiving weekend. Republicans took the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, challenging the validity of the recounts based on the 14th Amendment. On November 24th, the day after Thanksgiving that year, the high court announced it would consider a case a week later. 
the Supreme Court sent the case back to the Florida Supreme Court, which responded in an unexpected way. On December 8th, it ordered recounts to resume statewide under a state law allowing for such recounts. Bush lawyers immediately appealed the decision, and the next day the U.S. Supreme Court issued an injunction halting the recounts pending its own evaluation. The injunction placed the Supreme Court at center stage in the ongoing election controversy. Ordinarily a quiet place, the court was surrounded by hundreds of demonstrators, many of them shouting at each other. Responding to requests from the public, the court agreed to release the audio tapes of the oral arguments immediately after they ended. With an unprecedented speed, the court issued its historic ruling the following day. It issued an unsigned or per curiam opinion. Justices John Paul Stevens, David Souter, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Stephen Breyer dissented, which meant in effect that Chief Justice William Rehnquist and Justices Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonine Scalia, Anthony Kennedy, and Clarence Thomas agreed with the unsigned ruling. The majority invoked the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection of the laws and the principle of one person, one vote. To rule, that the recounts ordered by the Florida Supreme Court were improper and should be halted. Even though there were four dissenting justices, seven of the nine found that the recount posed constitutional problems. Dissents by Justices David Souter and Stephen Breyer acknowledged equal protection concerns. By all four of the dissenting judges sharply criticized the majority for concluding that there was no time left for the recounts to take place. The court's decision was extremely controversial, but it had the immediate effect of ending the turmoil of the 2000 election. The next day, Vice President Gore conceded, stating that, quote, while I strongly disagree with the court's opinion, I accept it. He was praised for placing the rule of law and respect for the court above his own interests. For years after the ruling, when Justice Antonin Scalia was asked about it, his answer was, get over it. Most Americans did just that, though it still rankled many who viewed the decision as a result-oriented and political one. A conservative majority that usually deferred to state courts interpreting their own laws had done the opposite by ordering the count recounts to end. Many wondered if the court would have ruled the same way if it had been the Republican Bush who wanted the recounts to continue and the Democrat Gore who was the one opposing them. Here is the unsigned decision of the court. Our consideration is limited to the present circumstances where the problem of equal protection in election processes generally presents many complexities. The question before the court is not whether local entities in the exercise of their expertise may develop different systems for Im implementing elections. Instead, we are presented with a situation where a state court with the power to assure uniformity has ordered a statewide recount with minimal procedural safeguards. When a court orders a statewide remedy, there must be at least some assurance that the requirements of equal treatment and fundamental fairness are satisfied. Upon due consideration of the difficulties identified at this point, it is obvious that the recount cannot be conducted in compliance with equal protection and due process without substantial additional work. It will require not only the adoption, after opportunity or argument, of adequate statewide standards for determining what is a legal vote and practicable procedures to implement them, but also orderly judicial review of any disputed matters that may arise. 
The Supreme Court of Florida has said that the legislature intended the state's electors to participate fully in the federal electoral process. That statute, in turn, requires that any controversy or any contest that is designed to lead to a conclusive selection be completed by December 12th. That date is upon us, and there is no recount procedure in place under the state Supreme Court's order that comports with minimal constitutional standards. Because it is evident that any recount seeking to meet the December 12th date will be unconstitutional for the reasons we have discussed, we reverse the judgment of the Supreme Court of Florida ordering a recount to proceed. None are more conscious of the vital limits on judiciary authority than are the members of this court, and none stand in more admiration of the Constitution's design to leave the selection of the president to the people through their legislators and to the political sphere. When contending parties invoke the process of the courts, however it becomes our unsought responsibility to resolve the federal and constitutional issues the judicial system has been forced to confront. So when all of this stuff went down with Biden and all of these recounts and the evidence that could not be presented to justify recounts, um, what the Republicans did in the past put them in the position of where they were when it came down to wanting recounts because they felt that they lost or they felt that votes were not properly counted. They really couldn't come up with the evidence necessary to prove that. So I'm going to read one of the dissenting opinions by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on this decision. She said, the Chief Justice acknowledges that provisions of Florida's election code may well admit of more than one interpretation, but instead of respecting the state high court's province to say what the code means, the Chief Justice maintains that Florida Supreme Court has veered so far from the ordinary practice of judicial review that what it did cannot be properly called judging. My colleagues have offered a reasonable construction of Florida's law. Their construction coincides with the view of one of Florida's seven Supreme Court justices. I might join the Chief Justice were it my commission to interpret Florida law, but disagreement with the Florida's court interpretation of its own law does not warrant the conclusion that the justices of that court have legislated. There is no cause here to believe that the members of Florida's high court have done less than their mortal best to discharge their oath of office, and no cause to upset their reasoned interpretation of Florida law. So there you have it. Our second case for tonight, District of Columbia versus Heller, 2008. The right to bear arms. 2008, just keep that in mind, that it finally gets clarified. Ending a long-running debate, the Supreme Court declared that the Second Amendment provides for an individual right to buy and possess firearms, a right that is not limited to the arming of state militias. Hmm, I wonder what changed in our politics that we would need to clarify this right to bear arms. Hmm, who was president in 2008? Who was like just coming to power that would have made this case be of the utmost importance to clarify who had the right to bear arms? I'll just let you think about it. The oddly phrased comma-filled wording of the Second Amendment 
has confounded legal scholars for a long time. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Did its reference to a well-regulated militia mean that the right to bear arms only refers to members of long-ago state militias? Or was that just a throat-clearing preface that does nothing to limit the right of the people in general to possess firearms? In spite of the sharp disagreement over the meaning of the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court did not appear to be in any hurry to resolve the dispute. The only pronouncement it made on the subject in the 20th century came all the way back in 1939 with the case Miller versus the United States, which declared that the obvious purpose of the amendment was to arm militias, not individuals. Challenges aimed at overturning that interpretation fell flat until the beginning of the 21st century when more conservatives joined the court. Gun toting. <clears throat> Gun rights advocates saw an opportunity to turn the Second Amendment from an archaic provision into a proclamation of an individual right to own firearms. A group of libertarians mounted the challenge, representing several Washington, D.C. residents who said the district's strict handgun ordinances violated the Second Amendment. As the case proceeded through lower courts, only Dick Heller, a federal employee who had been denied a gun permit, remained as a plaintiff. Justice Antonin Scalia, the leader of the court's conservative wing, wrote the court's 5-4 majority opinion. An advocate of interpreting the Constitution by its original meaning, he delved deeply into the meaning of the words of the Second Amendment and concluded that, quote, they guarantee the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. This is a great moment in American history, said Wayne LaPierre, vice president of the NRA, in response to the decision. Perhaps demonstrating the flaws of originalism, using original sources and texts to interpret the Constitution, dissenting Justice John Paul Stevens used the same approach of examining texts from the founding of the Constitution to actually reach the opposite conclusion, that the Second Amendment was only about arming militia members. Justin Stephen Breyer, who also wrote a dissent, emphasized that the Second Amendment's protection of gun rights is not absolute and asserted that the D.C. ordinance was neither unreasonable nor inappropriate. Justices Stevens, David Souter, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined Breyer. Well, since this ruling, we've had several people um, attempt things within the Capitol, right? We've had several people go armed and storm the Capitol. We've had several people try to storm the White House grounds. But in 2008, a lot of these people were empowered. Because the Heller decision applied only to the laws of the District of Columbia, a federal enclave, it took another case, McDonald versus Chicago, excuse me, to apply the Heller decision to state laws governing gun use across the nation. That 2010 ruling declared that the individual right view of the Second Amendment applied to state laws as well. But the Heller and McDonald decisions did not end the debate over gun control, a debate that often comes into public view after a mass shooting. 
Some gun control measures have been upheld partly because of this section of Scalia's ruling that stated, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools in government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So here is the decision of the court written by Justice Scalia. The Second Amendment provides a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In interpreting this text, we are guided by the principle that the Constitution was written to be understood by the voters. Its words and phrases were used in their normal and ordinary as distinguished from technical meaning. Normal meaning may, of course, include an idiomatic meaning, but it excludes secret or technical meanings that would not have been known to ordinary citizens in the founding generation. The two sides in this case have set out very different interpretations of the amendment. Petitioners and dissenters believe that it protects only the right to possess and carry a firearm in connection with militia service. Respondent argues that it protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within the home. The Second Amendment is naturally divided into two parts its prefatory clause and its operative clause. The former does not limit the latter grammatically, but rather announces a purpose. The amendment could be rephrased because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and share and bear arms, excuse me, shall not be infringed. Although this structure of the second amendment is unique in our constitution, other legal documents of the founding era particularly individual rights, provisions of state constitutions commonly include a prefatory statement of purpose. The people refers to all members of the political community, not an unspecified subset. We start therefore with a strong presumption that the second amendment right is exercised individually and belongs to all Americans. At the time of the founding as now to bear meant to carry, when used with arms, however, the term has the meaning that refers to carrying for a particular purpose, confrontation. Although the phrase implies that the carrying of the weapon is for the purpose of offensive or defensive action, it in no way connotes participation in a structured military organization. Putting all of these elements together, we find that they guarantee the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation, there seems to us no doubt on the basis of both text and history that the Second Amendment conferred an individual right to keep and bear arms. Of course, the right was not unlimited, just as the First Amendment's right of free speech was not. It should be unsurprising that a significant matter has been for so long judicially unresolved. For most of our history, the Bill of Rights was not thought applicable to the states, and the federal government did not significantly regulate the possession of firearms by law-abiding citizens. Other provisions of the Bill of Rights have similarly remained unilluminated for lengthy periods. This court first held a law to violate the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of speech in 1931, almost 150 years after the amendment was ratified. 
Although we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis today, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on the long-standing prohibitions uh, such as possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. We also recognize another important limitation on the right to keep and carry arms. Miller said, as we have explained, that the sorts of weapons protected were those in common use at the time. We think that limitation is fairly supported by the tradition of prohibition of carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. So again, that begs the question, does everybody have the right to carry an AK-47? In common use at the time are the key words. In sum, we hold that the district's ban on handgun possession in the home violates the Second Amendment, as does its prohibition against rendering any lawful firearm in the home operable for the purpose of immediate self-defense. Assuming that Heller is not disqualified from the exercise of his right, the district must permit him to register his handgun and must issue him a license to carry it in the home. Undoubtedly, some think that the Second Amendment is outmoded in a society where our standing army is the pride of our nation, where well-trained police forces provide personal security, and where gun violence is a serious problem. That is perhaps debatable, but what is not debatable is that it is not the role of this court to pronounce the Second Amendment extinct. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. All right. I want to go to the dissenting opinion of Justice Stephen Breyer. What does he have to say about why this might not have been such a good idea? <laughs> he says, I shall show that the district's law is consistent with the Second Amendment even if that amendment is interpreted as protecting a wholly separate interest in individual self-defense. That is so because the district's regulation, which focuses upon the presence of handguns in high crime, ooh, here come that dog whistle, urban areas, <laughs> represents a permissible legislative response to a serious, indeed, life-threatening problem. Black folks with guns, in other words. Thus, I here assume that one objective, but as the major con majority concedes, not the primary, of those who wrote the Second Amendment was to help assure citizens that they would have arms available for purposes of self-defense. Self-defense against who? At the time. Even so, a legislator could reasonably conclude that the law will advance goals of great public importance, namely saving lives, preventing injury, and reducing crime. The law is tailored. Woo-wee! What is about to get? <laughs> Here comes the dog whistle again. The law is tailored to the urban crime problem in that it is local in scope and thus affects only a geographic area, both limited in size and, for the third time, entirely urban. He telling you. 
this is a mm, this is a whole mess. He's basically saying <laughs> this law was in place not to give everybody, especially them urbanites, the ability to own individually their these guns. The law concerns handguns, which are specially linked. Gosh, again, that let me, let me count that one, <laughs> two, three, four. Okay. Five, <laughs> he says it affects only a geographic area, both limited in size and entirely urban. The law concerns handguns, which are specially linked to urban gun deaths and injuries and which are overwhelmingly favorite weapon of armed criminals. And at the same time, the law imposes a burden upon gun owners that seems proportionately no greater than restrictions in existence at the time of the second amendment was adopted. Good God almighty. He just basically saying this was intended for them black folks around here with these crime laden neighborhoods. In these circumstances, the district's law falls within the zone that the second amendment leaves open to regulation by legislatures. Isn't this the justice that's retiring, Stephen Breyer? <laughs> Ooh, child. Although I adopt for present purposes the majority's position that the Second Amendment embodies a general concern about self-defense, I shall not assume that the amendment contains a specific untouchable right to keep guns in the house to shoot burglars. The majority, which presents evidence in favor of the former proposition, does not because it cannot convincingly show that the Second Amendment seeks to maintain the latter in pristine, unregulated form. To the contrary, colonial history itself offers important examples of the kinds of gun regulation that citizens would then have thought compatible to the right to keep and bear arms. Whether it embodied in federal or state constitutions or the background common law, and those examples include substantial regulation of firearms, in urban areas, this man, <laughs> including regulations that impose obstacles to the use of firearms for the protection of the home. Boston, Philadelphia, and New York City, mm -mm -mm. the three largest cities in America during that period, all restricted the firing of guns within city limits to at least some degree. From 1993 to 1997, there were 180,533 firearm-related deaths in the United States as an average of over 36,000 per year. 51% were suicides, 44% were homicides, 1% were legal interventions, 3% were unintentional accidents, and 1% were of undetermined causes. Over that same period, there was an additional 411,000 800 non-fatal firearm-related injuries treated in hospitals, an average of 82,000 per year. Of these, 62% resulted from assaults, 17% were unintentional, 6% were suicide attempts, and 1% were legal interventions, and 13% were of unknown causes. Handguns are involved in a majority of firearm deaths and injuries in the U.S. From 1993 to 97, 81% of firearm homicide victims were killed by handgun. 
in the same period for the 41% of firearm injuries for which the weapon type is known, 82% of them were from handguns. Among children under the age of 20, handguns accounted for approximately 70% of all unintentional firearm-related injuries and deaths. The majority spends the first 54 pages of its opinion attempting to rebut Justice Stevens' evidence that the amendment was enacted with a purely militia-related response. In the majority's view, the amendment also protects an interest in armed personal defense, at least to some degree. But the majority does not tell us precisely what that interest is. Putting all of the Second Amendment's textual elements together, the majority says, we find that they guarantee the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. Then three pages later, it says that we do not read the Second Amendment to permit citizens to carry arms for any sort of confrontation. Yet, with one critical exception, it does not explain which confrontations count. Ooh-wee. Ooh-wee. <laughs> it simply leaves the question unanswered. And that is a part of the problem right now that we're having in this country with the number of unarmed people being shot, with the number of people who have legal firearms and feel that their life is under threat. So it does not explain what confrontations count because you can have a, a firearm and think that you're defending yourself and we turn around and you another hashtag and they say, well, your confrontation didn't count. Your interpretation of what was happening in the moment didn't count. Your being in your house, minding your own business, under your cover, sleep with your firearm next to you, and someone busts down your door with a no-knock warrant, your confrontation didn't count. Police were justified in firing 23 shots at you because your confrontation didn't count. As he concludes here, nor is it at all clear to me how the majority decides which loaded arms a homeowner may keep. The majority says that the amendment protects those weapons, quote, typically possessed by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes. This definition conveniently excludes machine guns, but permits handguns, which the majority describes as the most popular weapon chosen by Americans for self-defense in the home. But what sense does this approach make? According to the majority's reasoning, if Congress and the states lift restrictions on the possession and use of machine guns and people buy machine guns to protect their homes, the court will have to reverse course and find that the Second Amendment does, in fact, protect the individual self-defense-related right to possess a machine gun. I told y'all. <laughs> They say a handgun, but let's take a look at the skyrocketing sales of things like AK-47s and how many Americans now own them. That's a whole mess. <laughs> All right. I know that was a lot to digest on two very important, two very important landmark cases, voting rights and the right to bear arms. If you would like to respond to either one of those, 
please feel free to hit the camera and I will bring you on for some discussion. As we are waiting, if you've been listening to Daring Dialogues tonight, I want to thank you for your time and attention. If you've been listening by Anchor, remember, we will continue to do our Sunday Dialogue so you can join us here every Sunday and we will reconvene our Daring Dialogues in the fall. More details will be following. Stay well, continue to be light, and have a blessed evening.